Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The X-Files is off this week, but I wanted to bring you this interesting conversation from my friend and CNN colleague, Don Lemon host of his own podcast, Silence is Not an Option. In this episode, Don talks about the record number of black candidates who ran for office this year, and he speaks to two newly elected representatives about their platforms and what they hope to accomplish in Congress. I enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you will too. I also wanted to wish you all a very happy and healthy new year. We all know 2020 has been a challenging year for all of us, but here's to a brighter future ahead. Congressman John Lewis, before his passing, wrote, democracy is not a state, it is an act. And what he meant was that America's democracy is not guaranteed. It is only as strong as our willingness to fight for it. This was a historic election day for Black America, by all counts. Not only did Kamala Harris get elected vice president, but we also had a record-breaking 125 Black candidates running for federal office across the country, and six Black candidates for the Senate. Quite a few of them won, although maybe not as many as some might have hoped. And that's kind of been the theme of this whole election. Good outcomes, exciting future ahead, but also something of a reality check about how much work still needs to be done. We need to keep fighting, keep tugging that arc of the moral universe towards justice, because silence is not an option. In some ways, this has been a bittersweet victory. If we view the presidential election as a referendum on racial justice in America, then yes, Most Americans voted for Joe Biden and his message of racial equality. But also, more than 70 million Americans cast their ballots for Donald Trump, despite his racist rhetoric and his resistance to condemn white supremacy. There was no blue wave, as some people had predicted. No sharp rebuke that we the people will not tolerate this kind of hateful and fear-mongering leader. And that was a tough reality check for many. Sadly, this isn't the first time black Americans have been disappointed by electoral politics. When Barack Obama first ran for president in 2008, so many people had high hopes for a united post-racial America. I have asserted a firm conviction, a conviction rooted in my faith in God and my faith in the American people, that working together, we can move beyond some of our old racial wounds, and that in fact, we have no choice We have no choice if we are to continue on the path of a more perfect union. But we saw what happened in the four years since he left office. The country is just as racially divided as ever, maybe more. And if anything, there's been a backlash of white supremacy since then. Oftentimes it feels like one step forward and two steps back for black Americans. Looking back a little further into history, I'm reminded of the Reconstruction era in the 1870s and 1880s. 
After the Civil War, black men gained the right to vote and run for office. We had black senators and representatives, but unfortunately, that didn't last too long. There was a racist backlash that led to new oppressive laws aimed at limiting the rights of black people and disenfranchising black voters. After this brief window of representation, there were no black congressmen between 1901 and 1929. As we look into the future, we need to acknowledge the past, those black politicians who came before us in the Reconstruction era of the 1870s and 80s and in the Civil Rights era of the 1960s. Here's the late Congressman John Lewis. In 1963, we cannot register to vote simply because of the color of our skin. We had to pay a poll tax, pass a so-called literacy test. Fifty years later, we can ride anywhere we want to ride. We can stay where we want to stay. Those signs that said white and colored are gone. And you won't see them anymore. But there's still invisible signs, barriers in the hearts of humankind that form a gulf between us. In John Lewis's home state of Georgia, we saw the power of black organizers to get out the vote and help get Biden elected. Organizers like Stacey Abrams, Nsay Ufot, and Latasha Brown worked to register hundreds of thousands of new voters and educate them about voting rights. But let's just be clear. Biden's victory won't erase our bigotry. There was systemic racism in America long before Trump entered the Oval Office. He just pulled back the curtains and made it impossible to ignore. He drew white supremacists out of the shadows, and it's unlikely they'll go back into hiding. The problem isn't going away. There's still so much work to be done. Newly elected representatives Cori Bush and Mondaire Jones are ready to do that work and help forge a path forward. This week, they're joining more than 60 of their colleagues in Washington for congressional orientation. And I'm lucky enough to speak with both of them today. Many of you know that growing up, I never imagined someone like me could run for Congress, let alone get elected. To grow up poor, black, and gay is to not see yourself anywhere. My mom always told me that I could be whatever I wanted to be as long as I put my mind to it. Just dream big, she told me. Representative-elect Mondaire Jones was just elected to represent New York's 17th district. And when he takes office in January, he will be one of the first black gay men in Congress, along with representative-elect Richie Torres. You know, Don, for most of my life, I did not believe that someone like me could run for Congress, let alone win. I spent most of my life, and I'm, of course, only 33 years old, terrified of people finding out that I'm gay and rejecting me because of it. And so now to be (laughs) one of the most openly gay people in American politics. Hmm. So it's beautiful. And of course, when I get messages seemingly every other day from folks throughout my district and throughout this country, from people young and old uh, telling me that I'm helping them to come to terms with who they are and to live authentic lives, that is the kind of representation I did not have growing up when I was questioning if there was a place for me in a world filled with so much injustice. Uh, And it's the kind of representation that I know is really powerful in changing lives. Isn't it empowering? And I mean, I came out in 2011. It was terrifying. And then you realize how empowering it is, even with all the criticism and the fear. Like you you evolve. It's almost, it's revolutionary, don't you think? 
It is. And Don, not that we planned this, but your coming out helped me to come out because I remember when you did that and I remember studying that and, and talking to my family about it and how seeing that was helpful in terms of giving me courage to do the same eventually. What? <laughs> no way. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> I never... Really? Yeah, I'm serious. Well, I'm so glad that you are where you are and that you are as self-possessed and as empowered as you are and you're doing what you're doing. And um, I am honored that you said that about me. So listen, um, share the congressional orientation last week. What was that experience like there? It is surreal to be in the Capitol. You know, I just got back from touring a sample office and, and going through an office setup training. And these buildings are regal. And my colleagues and I, members of the freshman class in the 117th Congress, shared our stories. And we all, all of us, bring this rich tapestry of experiences from all across the country. And it's rooted in leadership and in community-mindedness. It's just such an honor to be able to serve with people like that. So, um, you know, people are talking about, oh, he's so left and and he's a socialist. And uh, you're not worried about that. Uh, you know, they call Joe Biden a socialist. So I joked on Twitter a year ago when they were when they were calling him that because it's been happening for a long time now. What's the point of being a moderate if they're just going to call Joe Biden a socialist? <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your plans um, for Washington. What are the important issues? What's your platform? So there are three primary policy items I want to push forward and enact into law. The first of which is COVID-19 relief. We have to pass the HEROES Act, and then democracy reforms are my number two. We have to do things like automatic voter registration, replacing partisan gerrymandering with independent redistricting commissions when we draw congressional districts. And these are all features of a bill called the For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1. And then finally, restoring the SALT deduction. That's the state and local tax deduction. We pay the highest property taxes in the entire nation in Westchester and Rockland. Uh, and again, when that was limited, it, it really crushed middle-class families in my district. Are you surprised at how many people voted for the current president? 47% of Americans voted for Donald Trump despite his racism. Were you surprised by that? Do you feel that that diminishes the victory at all? Uh, despite his racism, despite his uh, Islamophobia, despite his anti-Semitism, his misogyny, uh, you name it. And that is deeply troubling. It, it was not the repudiation that many of us had expected. Uh, and I think um, really emphasizes the hard, long-suffering work uh, of, uh, you know, having to have conversations about these things, including racism, uh, with white America. Uh, and we have to make sure that we, I think, are, are, are running on bold uh, promises uh, in terms of what we're going to fight for that will really show people that it will be different when Democrats are in control. Hmm. Uh, but that's hard if people don't want to talk about race. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've all seen more black Republicans now running for office. And one in three black men in the Midwest actually voted for Donald Trump. At least that's what the polls show. Why do you think that is? And how should the Democratic Party respond to that? 
the black community has been devastated economically and socially. And black men, I think in particular, historically have really clinged to notions of masculinity as a means to take back power in our society. And I think Donald Trump, who does not care for social norms and really is allowed to to dig in, to lean in on on these notions of, you know, being a macho guy, um, is really attractive for people who want to live that life, except it's not available to them. Uh, it is only because of Donald Trump's white privilege that he's able to do that. Uh, and, and, and that means, you know, by the way, that we also have to work on offering as a Democratic Party an agenda that resonates with black men. You know, like one that's genuinely going to reform our criminal justice system, one that's genuinely going to materially improve uh, everybody's economic prospects. And I don't think we do that as a Democratic Party well, anyway. Mm. Do you think that there's a generational divide with um, with the Black Caucus? And if so, can you reconcile that? How do you? Well, I'm so looking forward to becoming one of the new members of the Congressional Black Caucus. And as I mentioned to one of the current members last night, bringing much needed ideological diversity uh, and a millennial perspective. You know, I have great admiration for... Um, uh, black members of Congress who have uh, sort of come before me and who are still serving. And so you, if, if we are going to be powerful as a caucus, you have to create a space for people to, to be who they are and to represent their constituents, uh, even if it means a different kind of leadership from their predecessors uh, and a different perspective, especially when it comes to, um, you know, big structural uh, changes like Medicare for all, uh, or, or, or not taking corporate PAC money. Um, and, and, I, and I hear from older members that they're excited about the, the ideological diversity that my class is going to bring and, and that new energy. Do you think that the caucus, though, is a useful organization? Does it have a future? Absolutely. You know, the, the reason for the existence of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, was to obtain political power for the black community uh, for, meaning for black America. And so, you know, now that we are growing our ranks, even, uh, it's a way to leverage political power in a world where uh, white people still have most of that. And to make sure that we are able to express and to sh- our views and show leadership on things like policing reform. Yeah. What do you think will be the future of black politics in terms of priority strategies and political alliances? I think the the future of black politics is young, energetic, progressive, and urgent. I think it is robustly reforming our criminal legal system, including in the policing context. Uh, It is Medicare for All, which is an anti-racism program. Uh, When you ensure that everybody in the richest nation in the history of the world has health insurance or has health care, uh, that is working to undo the racist disparities uh, that, that we have in this country when you condition uh, quality, affordable care and how much money you have in your pocket. So this year, Black Lives Matter has gained a lot of traction. These protests have called attention to questions about police reform, about economic justice and even reparations. How can we translate that activist energy into electoral politics or is it a separate arm of politics? 
It is not a separate arm of politics. The movement for racial justice is inextricably linked to the electoral context. Uh, the people who are able to make policy decisions are folks who are in the United States Congress. And so we have to make sure that the Black Lives Matter movement also includes registering people to vote, beating back attempts to undermine our democracy to make it more difficult to vote, and of course, holding your elected officials accountable. Next up, I'll speak with Representative-elect Cori Bush right after this break. And now, back to silence is not an option. To the black women, the black girls, the nurses, the essential workers, the single mothers, this is our moment. Our America, not Trump's America, our America will be led not by the small-mindedness of a powerful few, but the imagination of a mass movement that includes all of us. That is the America we are fighting for. Representative-elect Cori Bush will represent Missouri's first congressional district. She is a progressive community leader and veteran Black Lives Matter activist. A few years ago, she was homeless, and now she walks the halls of Congress. When she arrived at freshman member orientation last week, she had a shocking initial experience. A stark reminder that she is something of an outsider on Capitol Hill. So my first day of orientation, I was wearing a black mask with white letters that said Breonna Taylor's name. Uh, you know, it was before the first training even started. Uh, people were just walking around, just saying hello, greeting each other. And someone walked up to me and they said, oh, hi, Brianna. And I'm looking, you know, looking like nobody else was next to me. And uh, and then I realized that they were talking about my mask. And so I said, no, Brianna Taylor, and, you know, I explained who she who she is. And then someone else walked up to me and did the same thing. And then a little while later, another person, no, three people walked up and they were like, hi. And so and this man was like, hey, you must be Brianna Taylor. And I said, no. And I explained who she was. And so, but the thing is, out of the six people that came to me, not one of them knew who she was. Oh, that not that astonishing? We think like everyone is paying attention, but that speaks to the two different worlds that we live in. Do you think that that's maybe an indication of just how tough it's going to be for you to even break through on the other side? Because they haven't even heard of Breonna Taylor. Well, now they have, and they're about to hear about a lot of, a lot more. Tatiana, Ayana, Sandra, they're going to hear all of them. So you're, you're, you're doing the very responsible thing. You're wearing a mask. You are a nurse. You say that you had COVID earlier this year. It feels like an important perspective to be represented in Congress right now. What is your plan for addressing this public health crisis? Waiting on a vaccine isn't where we need to start. That's coming. People are working on it. But what are we doing for our people right now that have needs? We need to be making sure that there is an actual COVID relief. So for me, I'm pushing that the UBI, uh, the $2,000 a month, you know, universal basic income, um, and that's to go to each and every person. Uh, we need to have funds right now that are going directly to our hospitals, that are going directly to our cities, um, that are going to um, healthcare clinics. 
domestic violence uh, shelters and um, that are in places where our unhoused community frequent. So we, we have to start there. Also, um, making sure that there is adequate testing. We don't have the testing that we need. I've talked to healthcare workers who are in the hospitals, on the front line, and they don't have, they can't even get COVID testing. You know, so we have to do better with that. So I'm just asking for resources that, go, that goes directly to the people on the ground and to the people that are doing the work um, and then the money for people to sustain. Okay, so listen, I, I love your passion. And you have been an organizer with Black Lives Matter. Now you're heading to Congress. How do you think about translating Black Lives Matters into legislative politics? How do you do that now? It has to be in every single thing that we do and we talk about everything because black people are everywhere and we're in everything. We have the same needs as as other people that don't look like us. So for me, yes, it's it's criminal justice reform. Yes, it's police accountability and, and, and all of those things. Um, uh, it's keeping black folks alive uh, at the hands of uh, police or anyone. So that is a big part of it. But I can't stop there. Also, what about our health care? Black folks need health care. You know, we need health care. We need actual care, not just the access. So a Medicare for all is going to do that for us. You know, I'm, I saw my patients die rationing insulin. Uh, also, a $15 an hour minimum wage is a start to make sure we go from starvation wages to having some type of a decent quality of life. You know, so uh, state colleges and universities and trade schools make it free. And then on top of making it free, cancel student debt. Because if we're talking about making sure that we close the racial wage gap, we can't have black women who are the, the biggest carriers and the longest carriers of student debt to be burdened with this and think that we're going to move out of poverty and think that if we don't address wage inequality, that we're going to move out of the positions that we are in. So in order for black lives to really matter, we have to address every single piece of this and we have to address the climate crisis. But we know that our communities are the ones that are hit the hardest. We are the most impacted by climate change. So um, that's how we make sure that Black Lives Matter. That's why my voice and the voice of so many others like me are important, because we are bringing that conversation to a place where the conversation was not or wasn't loud enough. And so this is a focal point for me. So I'm putting it in your (laughs) face. Like, what do you think? This is a priority for me. Okay, so let me ask you then, how are you going to pay for that? That's a question that everyone asks, even liberals. I think that's a legitimate question. Absolutely, absolutely. And people have, you know, issues with how I want to pay for it. I've already said we have to, number one, defund the police. Number two, we need to defund the Pentagon. Number three, we don't need a space force. Why are we bidding on Space Force location right now? Like, why is that an actual thing? We got kids in cages and you want Space Force. We got people sleeping on the street. We got, what, like 17 million hungry children in our in the country right now. And we're talking about Space Freaking Force. You know, so that's that's how we're going to pay for it. When we say, no, nah, y'all can't spend all of these hundreds of thousands of dollars on tear gas and, and rubber bullets and, and all of that. When we say, no, nah, you can't stockpile SWAT gear. We're going to put that money into education. We're going to put that money into substance use programs and, and all of that. That's that's where the money's going to come from. When Donald Trump could take $3.8 billion from the, from the uh, Pentagon budget and put it to the border wall, you know, and then people want to say, oh, but y'all can't, I can't give y'all money so y'all can eat. All I'm saying is give me what we need, take it from places where we don't need it. So there is an overfunding in some places and an underfunding in others. Give me what I need. All right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, Black voters helped deliver a victory to the Democrats in this presidential election. What do you think that means for the future of black politics, Corey? You know, we're just going to keep climbing. We're going to keep growing. And, you know, we are 
going from a position where um, I think, especially as, as Black women, you know, we were always expected to lead in the area of turning out the vote. You know what? Yeah, we're turning out the vote and we can do that. We know how to do that, you know, but we don't want to just turn out the vote. We want you to vote for us. And so we're doing the work um, and people are um, getting used to not only um, seeing us on the ballot, but supporting us, sending us the real money to help us to stay on the ballot, um, because that's the other thing that, that we have to people have to get used to. We have seen the black vote is not monolithic. It's really comprised of a diversity of perspectives, right? They're very conservative black people. They're very liberal black people. Is there a common ground here? Absolutely. We all want our children to be safe. We all want a decent education. We all want to feel like there is a place of prosperity for our lives and a a legacy to lead to who comes after us. So I think that is the common ground. I think the issue is just how we get there. And I think that the breakdown sometimes is economic. I've seen, you know, in the black community, people have said to me, we need to make sure we are a capitalist country and we need to make sure that black people get their portion. And so you can't do that being a socialist. So I've seen that 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 be the breakdown. Also, um, in the church, I've had people say in a black church, well, I'm a Republican because I don't believe in LGBTQ rights or I don't believe in um, abortion. So even though I support you on everything else, those two things is where we disconnect. And so I think that that's part of where the breakdown is. The president-elect said in his acceptance speech, right, he has acknowledged, even before his acceptance speech, um, the importance of the black vote in this election. And he said that he's going to have the backs of black Americans. What does that actually mean, you think? And how do black voters hold Democrats accountable? Well, I hope it means something that I've been wanting to see is equality through the door of equity. And so hopefully he'll be looking at how does this particular thing affect the black community? So I think that him having that ear is what's going to help. I think that's what we can expect from him, hopefully, is that he'll listen, um, that he's going to surround himself or at least have a door open to black activists and organizers and people who've actually been doing the work. So if he is having relationships with people on the ground um, all over our country that are doing that work, um, I think that we'll see some better things. So what do you say to young black girls and boys who are watching this historic win of yours and others and, of course, the new vice president-elect after these especially difficult past few years? What do you say to them? That this is for you. That this is for you. I did this for you when you were on my mind and my heart, you know, uh, because it's your turn. You got to have a moment to be able to move into positions you could have never dreamed about. And so if you look at what I did and how much adversity I went through to get here, one thing that you see as a pattern is I didn't quit. I didn't allow people to push me back and tell me what I couldn't have. I went back and I educated myself. I got back up and I moved on to go achieve something that we need for our community. So you can do the the same. You have power on the inside of you. Like grab a hold of that thing and hold on to it and you rise. Don't let the sky be your limit. The sky is not your limit because you can see it. Go after those things that you cannot see. So you keep climbing. Everything is in your hands. We wish Representatives-elect Cori Bush and Mondaire Jones the best of luck in Washington next year as they begin the hard work on the front lines of democracy. In the wake of this historic election, it's not just those in office who are thinking about the path forward. 
Hi, Don Lemon. Hi, Don. Hello, Don Lemon. We asked you for your hopes and wishes for the future of black politics. I think that this is an unprecedented time for black people. It has been an exhausting four years. But as usual, black folks, we're resilient and we bounce back. What I'd like to see from black politics is for us to continue to use our collective muscle, like what we did in this past election. And we need to show up, show out, and we need to become a political force. I'm white, but what I hope for the future of black politics is more representation. I hope that black people feel empowered to speak up and empowered to run for office. More people who look like me, who've been through what I've been through. More people like Michelle Obama, like Kamala Harris, more like Karen Bass and Holly Mitchell. I hope to see women like that for the future. Keep dreaming big, keep pushing forward, and keep speaking up, because silence is not an option. We're going to take a little break as we work on our next season. Stay subscribed so you're the first to know when we're back. Until then, you can always watch my show on CNN, or you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram to stay connected. Silence is Not an Option is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Zoe Saunders and Aaron Mathewson. Felicia Patinkin is our senior producer. Raj Makija is our senior production manager. Our intern is Maya Brown. And Nathan Miller is our engineer. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. Special thanks to Delano Massey, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, and Shanique Clark. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.